Hello and welcome to the Money Markets and Macro Podcast brought to you by Atticus Capital. I'm your host, Liam Hennessy. Now, today we are going to be discussing the payroll data. And there's a whole lot that is encompassed within the employment situation report and the establishment survey. We won't go detail by detail what it is in these, but sort of give you that overview, that 30,000 foot perspective. As always with these podcasts, we're going to start out with a brief look at the markets, the standard and poor index. We can do year to date just to get an idea of what it looks like so far, but it's only a few days into the year. So we can go a little further beyond that. The S and P is trading at 3895 a little lower, right around where we were back in June of 22, as well as early November. So nothing too crazy in the S&P. We saw Friday, there was a nice rally of about 2.3% in the S&P, breaking out above its short-term consolidation range. So it's very possible we get back around 4,000. NASDAQ here performing a little worse, trading at its lower end of the more one-year timeline, trading at 11,040.35. It hasn't broken above its one-week consolidation range, so we'll see if that decides to break out in the following week. If that it does occur, there is a probable chance, a solid chance we get to 11,400, but again, that is required that we break above a couple of more technical levels, uh, as well as the downside potential at around 10,641, 10,641 to 10,670. That's sort of the range we're looking at here at the lower end. The Dow Jones Industrial Average doing much better on a relative basis than the other two indexes, trading at 33,630. Like the S&P, it recently on Friday broke above its short-term Consolidation range, very possible. We did break above the floor for the prior head and shoulders, so that's a very solid sign. But we need some confirmation above 34,000. We'll see if we get there this week. <clears throat> the Russell 2000 index, it's the E mini, trading at uh, 1,803. Same ordeal that we're seeing with the Russell as we have seen in the Dow and the SP, the short term consolidation broken on Friday to the upside. Very possible we see a little bit more rally come into the markets over the next month. But again, as we always want to make sure and sort of keep in the back of our minds, the typical cyclical pattern of markets in March. What you will tend to see during this time period, not always, it's not 100%, but data rolls in, and we'll talk about this today, the post-holiday data rolls in, Markets have to readjust and stocks, indexes follow suit behind the data. Taking a look at natural gas, which I found very interesting. Natural gas futures are now trading at $3.70 down from $7 in early December. So natural gas futures 
are falling significantly. They are all the way back to the same levels they were in December of 2021, which is the same level again as where they were in August and July of 2021. So we are a long way down from the peak in natural gas, which gives us some indication that some of the supply shock effects have been ameliorated. The European region, which has had the most volatile natural gas prices in most of the world, the advanced world, you should, I could say, we don't obviously know everybody, every country's natural gas prices. I mean, Africa has a different ordeal. You can relatively assume the Middle East is doing quite fine. And we also have China, which is also fairly interesting because one would expect with the Chinese economy reopening and their zero COVID policies being picked away at here and there by the authorities after the protests, following the protests and the rest of the economic developments that we've seen in China, that you would expect natural gas prices to rise. The fact that there's going to be a much larger demand. Uh, maybe there's the expectation that that will occur. So these natural gas prices are falling because suppliers expect huge demand from the Chinese market. So they're flooding the system now to give themselves a cushion to stabilize the supply demand effect once the Chinese economy comes back online. Now that's one theory of the case. The other would be that the Chinese economy and maybe suppliers are still anticipating that yet the Chinese economy just will not result in that economic boom that they have been expecting. Now we won't go into that discussion today, but fairly soon we will be covering the Chinese market once again. Looking at crude oil, light crude oil futures, trading at 75.25, still trading at that lower bound, that lower range. Not much has gone on in the oil markets thus far. It's been relatively stable. You could say relatively stable. Still had some fairly volatile trading weeks between the last maybe eight or nine months ever since we hit the peak at, well, I can't see that here. We hit the peak back in March of 2022, trading almost near its highs of 131.05. We got to 130.53, and then we started to trade lower. The commodity started to fall. And this also is somewhat in line with the oil futures contracts that we have mentioned in this podcast previously. We have a couple other things here. The RBOB gasoline futures are trading at $2.24, down significantly where they were. They were at a high of about $4.32 in June of 2022, obviously trading down significantly from where we were back then. This will obviously trade in line with oil. We have European diesel. I had a bunch of these other energy future contracts that I was just taking a look through. I didn't intentionally, or I didn't intend for them to be included in the podcast. I was looking at feeder cattle futures, which are trading actually relatively near their highs at 182, uh, up from 
where were they back in 2020? Their low in 2020 was 103, and they've been going substantially higher ever since then. So I haven't looked too far into the feeder cattle futures myself, so uh, I won't be able to expand much further on these specific derivative contracts. Now, moving on to what the focus of our podcast today is going to be, and that's the payroll data. Now, we've discussed a little bit of the tertiary elements related to the payroll report, the health and strength of the economy. But quickly off the bat, we had the payroll data up by 223,000, which was below the lower end of the range for payroll data. The household survey is up around six to 700,000. Seems pretty good. But importantly, all of these, or a big sum, a large majority of these, are part-time employees. Full-time employment was lower by the smallest amount, by about 1,000, but full-time employment since March of 2022 is down 400,000 jobs, 400,000 employees. So that in and of itself gives credence to the company's cutting costs. This is something that we've discussed before, job sharing, job rotation, uh, cutting hours, reducing overtime, whatever it is that companies do, these small things that they'll do during this period, the, the periods of economic ambiguity where companies aren't sure exactly what's going on. So they begin to cut costs minimalistically within their workforce. But we have seen some obvious cuts occur, but a lot of these cuts have occurred in very high-tech, high-growth companies like Twitter, uh, more tech-level stocks, and these cuts haven't yet filtered into the rest of the economy just yet. And a lot of the focus... If you listen to the mainstream economists, if you listen to the Federal Reserve, a lot of this has been, when discussing, you say, economic viability and the transition, that in 2020, the, let's just use the United States, for example, during the lockdown period, consumers were at home, they had nothing to do but order items and things on Amazon. And with the reopening and people coming back out, people are going to switch from the goods-based economic model to the more pre-2019, pre-2020, 2019 level service-based economic consumption. And we'll go through that a little bit here today. We have the inventory cycle which was artificially amped up in 2021 because we had not only the lockdown effects, we also had the stimulus checks, the $4.5 trillion that the federal government spent in COVID response. And one of the important elements in the inventory cycle is a lot of this data correlates with the Treasury yield curve inversions, which got pretty rough back in 2000 or back in July, or I should say June, and then significantly steepened into July. And that's when you see a lot of this data 
from the payroll reports, from the economic establishment surveys, a lot of that data correlates well with how deep the yield curve inversion was. We saw a little bit of it in June, and it began to get steeper and steeper into July, and we saw the economic data hit a bit of a road bump. Maybe you could say it hit a landmine in June of 2021 and began to decelerate from that point on. So some of the hard data we have in the U.S. from this recent payroll report was imports, which are down 20%, down 7% in November alone. That's a month over month basis. And for this element, we've seen signs of slowing economic growth in the goods sector on the import side. All the way back in 2021, we had the, a lot of the shipping data. We had the blank sales, which we've discussed before, you know, ships coming in, dropping off cargo, heading back without uh, the containers. And there's been other developments on that front because we did discuss initially the blank sailing as it related to California port operators who were out of work or sidelined because of the California mandates. Uh, a lot of the employees that worked at the shipyards said, you know, for whatever reason, they, they won't comply with the mandate. So they were sent home and nobody could offload a lot of these cargo or a lot of the cargo in an efficient and effective manner. So blank sailing had to be employed and that has expanded because of not only that element in California, but the overall economic picture in the United States on the consumer side. And all of this on the import side is leading us and the data is showing us that there is a significant contraction occurring on the goods side. Okay, that's fine. We expected that. The mainstream economists and the mainstream media say, well, of course, we're going to see a goods sector contraction because we're transitioning to a service sector boom. Well, we'll get to that in a second. The ISM PMI Purchasing Manager Index is also down to the 2009 levels, down to the same levels we saw in 2020 and in 2009, which again is another picture that this may be a more extensive issue than just simply a transition, an ambiguous transition from goods to services. We had November factory orders of durable and non-durable goods which is a wide coverage of the goods sector, was down 1.5% month over month. This also topped out in June. And now, the transportation element of this data, the factory orders, is a relatively volatile sector or, or segment of this data set. So the November factory orders of durable and non-durable goods, excluding transportation, was also down 0.8% in November. Consumer goods were down 1.5% month over month in November, which matches the corporate stories and the yield curve inversion steepening. When we have consumer goods of factory orders down 1.5%, a lot of that gives us indications that what companies are seeing, this ambiguous slowdown, is starting to present itself as a more, less ambiguous slowdown and more serious contractionary signal, which is, gives us credence to a lot of the developments we've seen in the tech sector. And this is one of the big concerns where we'll see a lot of this data 
steepen and companies reacting to that steepening of data in more aggressive cost-cutting measures. So just because we haven't seen this whole plunge in employment doesn't mean that the economic picture behind which a lot of these companies make that decision isn't worsening. We also have the uh, this is the, sorry, the transition to the services-based economy. That's obviously something we just discussed here. We have the service economy data here where we're looking at, let me just get my notes here. We're looking at the, uh, the forward-looking data, unlike the sort of lagging data that we have in a lot of these payroll reports. We have the federal regional service PMI which is matching very similarly to the ISM PMI Purchasing Manager Index, which the Fed Regional Service PMI, which is a state-by-state -state data set, is down at the same level as we saw in 2020 and 2009. So even on a state-by-state -state basis, a lot of the state-based economies, which is sort of what you have to look at when you're looking at the United States, because you can't necessarily look at the U.S. economy as just the U.S. economy. And I think that's one of the big mistakes a lot of economists and individuals make when they're assessing U.S. economic viability. It's, it's, there's 50 states. There's 50 separate or 51 separate economies, depending on if you want to include the uh, territories or let's just say the, the inland states, whatever. There's a bunch of different economies that you have to take into consideration. And the Texas economy is not the same as the New York economy. The Florida economy isn't the same as the Alabama economy. The Chicago economy isn't the same as the Washington economy. So that's one of the things that you do have to take into consideration when you're looking at economic viability, stability, growth, and contraction in the United States. It's not like saying, and you know, it's the same a little bit for Europe. You can take a look at maybe a country like Germany and segment it into different regions, but it's a lot more pronounced in the United States because you can look at it on a state-by-state -state basis, which are clearly defined and readily accessible via the Federal Reserve's uh, regional service PMI, which is showing us, again, that there is something more here than just a typical ambiguous transition from a goods to a services economy. There's an overall contraction in goods and in services. There isn't the transition that people believe that there is. The S&P Global, also this data for the US, uh, the national US e uh, economic data, we have non-manufacturing drop off. This flash reading was at 44.7, 44.4, 44.7, which is under 50. That's showing a significant slowdown from the S&P Global U.S. economy data. This is non-manufacturing. It's a huge slowdown here. It's under If it's under 50, it's showing significant slowdown and potentially contraction. We even have new data, the ISM PMI non-manufacturing services data from December. This data fell, the headline here fell to 49.6 from 56.5 a month prior. This is the December data. That's down seven points in a month. 
for non-manufacturing. This is the service data. We also have business activity, which came in at 54.7, which may sound good, but it's down 10 points in December from one month prior. That's a mag that's a ginormous drop. There's something going wrong in the data. Lastly, here we have the ISM non-manufacturing new orders, which fell from 56 to 45.2. This is telling us service providers are seeing new orders present a full-blown contraction. The new orders didn't fall just from 56 to 50, which would see a relatively significant slowdown. And you could say, well, it's still above 50. It fell to 45.2. So this is that trickle-down effect. And I'm not saying trickle-down in reference to Reaganomic trickle-down economics or whatever it is that you want to make of that term. What I'm saying is trickle-down economic development. And this also applies to the March effect. I mentioned this, I believe, before Christmas. I had tossed out this little word of warning. I wasn't sure, wasn't 100% sure, but going back through history, what you will typically see is consumers spend more than their average on a monthly basis heading into the Christmas holiday season. Presents, gifts, trips, vacations, all of that occurs. And you see a boost in the economic fundamental data. And then following this period of time, you begin to see the invert effect, the inverse effect. And you could even call it a bullwhip effect, where if you ever watch a whip, when it snaps at the end, it goes you know, say left, you know, very far left for a second and then immediately snaps right. And you can look at that on a chart or you can look at that via the data and you can see it spike to the top side and then plunge. Or you can see it in, in the other effect too. It, it, it works in either way, but it's that same sort of physics-based approach to how a lot of this information and a lot of this data act in the real world. It acts on a physics basis. You can look at the, the economic picture, you can look in the markets and the economy, and there is some reasonable assessment you can make and analysis you can do using basic principles of physics. But a lot of this is telling us that this goods to services based transition, the economy is still good, jobs are still hot, Orders are still out there. People are still consuming. A lot of that is just not happening. Orders are down. Consuming is down. Spending is down. Orders are down. Prices are down. The entire picture, like with the March effect, is showing a very large deflationary recession on the forefront. We've made this on this podcast a very central theme. All the way back in August of last year, when I wrote the the case for deflation, that the long-term inflationists, those who are out there saying inflation's the be-all, end-all, 
That's all there is. Inflation is going to destroy the economy. That never was the case. Because a lot of the prices that we saw over the past so odd, you know, one and a half, two years, were supply-related shocks. We had a bunch of them. Lockdowns, supply shock. Response, supply shock. Different economies shutting down extremely severely. Another shock. China, New Zealand, Australia, Germany, Canada. They all had the most extreme lockdown policies on the planet. That obviously will lead to supply shocks. War in Europe. That's a supply shock. The sanction packages. That's another supply shock. So all of these different elements for why prices rose so significantly over such a short period of time were easily explained by simple economic developments, but you just had to be reasonably aware of what was occurring outside of the borders of the United States. And then the whole entire picture made sense. Everything made sense once you were able to look beyond the borders of the U.S. Most of the Europeans understand this. I'd say a lot of Europeans understand this because they've been facing the brunt of a lot of the supply shock effects, especially on the energy side. They know what's going on there. We just don't see it in the United States unless we look. <laughs> but that's what I wanted to leave us with today. The data is starting to slow. And in some cases, it's starting to contract. And once this information and this data really begins to seep into the broader economic picture in the United States, you're going to start to see companies take more drastic actions on the cost-cutting side. They've been able to get away with just minor cost-cutting over the past year. They've seen some ambiguous slowdowns. They've seen a yield curve inversion. They've seen some slowdowns in some of the data on the payroll side, consumer spending side, imports, exports, manufacturing, whatever it is. But once this data starts to really take an impact on their bottom line, you're going to see more extreme actions taken. That's where you'll see layoffs. Layoffs aren't the first thing that come because companies need to be able, if they're growth set, if they're growth minded, they want to be able to maximize the utility of the employees they have on board. They don't obviously want to go in and just say, well, some of the data is getting kind of worse, kind of bad. So let's get rid of 20% of our workforce just in case that potentially will occur in the future. They want certainty. And once this data is, starts to present certainty in economic contraction, you're going to see that reflected in the job market, in the labor market. So I'll leave you with that today. If you like, please go through this data, the Employment Situation December Report, Household and Establishment Survey from the Bureau of Labor Statistics. There's a lot of data in there. It can get pretty complicated. I recommend watching maybe some other economists. If you find other economists and other podcasters doing reports on this, I highly recommend it. Thanks again, and as always, for listening and tuning in. We have a special report coming out this week. It should be on Thursday, where we're going to reintroduce the article reads. I will label that podcast reading. So if you don't want to listen to an entire, let's say, or a mini audiobook essentially is what I'm going to do for the Thursday podcast. It's going to be an addition to the special reports along with the other special reports that we have included. So 
Thanks again, and we will see you all on the next one.